Boys! Get off the ice! Not safe! You're not going anywhere. Stop. Fourteen-year-old male, unresponsive and pulseless. You want clear? No pulse. There's nothing more we can do. This is the most powerful, compelling, verifiable, authenticated miracle story in recent history. Period. Bar none. Joyce Smith. Yes. We're doing everything we can for your son, but John isn't responding. There her son was without a pulse. She touched his feet, they were completely cold. And she said, you know what? I'm not gonna claim death, I'm about to claim life. Please God, send your Holy Spirit to save my son! The EKG machine started going off! He came back to life! I drowned for 15 minutes and then I was without a pulse for an additional 45. So in all, I was dead for over an hour. So far in my life, God had always been and done what he said he could do. And so I just started praying. Mom came in, she prayed, and instantly I had a pulse. Everybody that I explain the plot to gets goosebumps just even thinking about that something like this could happen. It's hard to believe. And I, you know, I'm a part of the story, telling the story, and it's hard for me to believe. Uh, this movie is described as a medical miracle because just that one idea, you know, patient dead, mother prayed, patient came back to life. This is a modern day resurrection story. When Joyce finally gave that complete surrender to God and said, you know, like, you have to take this, there's no question that something miraculous happened. Your son is alive. His pulse is very, very weak. At best, we have a long road ahead. And I'm not gonna lie to you, we're in uncharted territory. It's not just about one miracle. It's about a series of miracles. Those miracles happened to John and to Joyce and that family, but then, like a ripple in a lake, those miracles just keep moving out. The circle keeps getting wider. Oh, this is so wonderful. Wow, look at our church and our friends were phenomenal. There was probably 20 people that had already started gathering. By that evening, there was probably close to 75 to 100 people there, and they were overflowing the waiting room out into the hallway. How people rallied around John and his family in their in a time of need. People being really selfless and sacrificing their time, their resources. The power in the community and power in faith is, is strong, and it's something that this world needs all through and through. We had a prayer vigil with 300 people at the church. And to hear people pray and cry out to God for John, I thought this is what heaven is like. This is probably what heaven is like. They just are believing for God, just the spirit of faith. Prayer is a centerpiece of the story. People coming together praying, believing that God listens and answers our prayers. Simply stated, prayer changes everything. If it be your will. I think the most amazing thing about this movie is that it happened. This isn't fiction. True stories like this make the case for God. The skeptic will say, man, I don't know. Okay, Devon, you know, I know you were involved in heavens for real, but okay, I, I, don't, I don't believe that. Okay, miracles from heaven, I don't know how she got cured when she fell down the tree, but no, nah, I don't think so. Ah, man, wow, I mean, the kid is alive. Maybe there's something to that. I come from a family of doctors, and this is one of those stories that the medical community knows, and there's no explanation. I mean, it's truly, in that sense, a miracle. We rely on doctors, and I think doctors are great. I mean, they're a huge blessing. But there's a time when they say there's nothing else we can do, 
And I think it's that moment where God's able to step in and you see his hand. And the moment she prays, not an hour later, not five days later, the moment she prays, every single apparatus on that boy turns on. There's simply no other explanation. Your son's a miracle. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning to that, huh? I'll tell you what, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing because we are in a series called Better Together, and we wanted to talk about how um, we're better together and looking at the book of Acts, looking at the first century church. And last week, we talked about how God himself being... Um, both as a trinity and Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and same in essence, yet different roles coming together relationally. And we're to be relational as our God is relational. And it's important because when we're relational, when we're wanting to reach out and commune with one another and have communion with each other, then we're better together. And so it's important for us to, to embrace that. And this week, we're going to be talking about being reverential because we're going to look at uh, the life of this church, because Acts 2.42 through 47, we see the community of believers coming together. When you're looking at this book and you're looking at the church, especially when it first started, you see the Pentecost, which is that, that event that happened in chapter 2 and the, in the coming of the age of the church and the church age and moving forward to make a difference. When Jesus, who died on the cross for, for our sin, was resurrected and ascended to, to, the, to the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father, now he leaves Peter, James, and John to start the church. And these community of believers are starting to see some things happening. They're starting to see God's hand, these miracles that are happening. Now, when we look at a story like this or other stories that are that more modern day stories, we become a bit skeptical wondering, where are these miracles coming from? What is particularly that we have to look at. And we have to understand, too, what the scriptures are saying, too, in light of the first century, is that the first century saw it more often, but I think even third world countries are seeing it more often than we may hear of it here in America. But are miracles something we see in this magnitude, or is it something that we could even admit that miracles can happen every day in our lives and we don't realize it? And so we have to ask those questions because too often we don't understand. Now, this is a great story. We understand and we, we accept it because we see that it's centered around one particular person. And as we look at the scriptures, we have to understand what was at the beginning with this church. Where was it centered around? And so we want to look at that. Today, So look with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 43, as we're working through this passage. We're only going to touch on 43 today. And what we want to talk about is being reverential. So if you have your outlines with you, you can see right there in front of you. That's the first point. And we want to look at verse 43 in chapter 2, and it says this, And awe, in the ESV version, I'm going to share another version here. And all came upon every soul, the Greek word suke, where we know every person, every soul, every part of their being. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, the NET, the New English translation, says reverential awe. The only version that says that. I love that word because 
the word awe actually is phonase in the Greek, which we get a phobia from. It means fear, alarming. It, it means frightened. And they were frightened of the signs and wonders around them, but they were frightened because they recognized that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected and he was purposeful and he was it was the reason why he came was to permeate and move in the midst of these new believers in the first century to make an impact to make a difference but they surrendered they were in awe of God's presence and that word is so um, it's intimidating actually means the product of intimidation but not intimidation as to scare but to move on the heart of a person, to get them to be thinking and looking. So I asked a question. I said, what are some of the things that we fear or alarm? Uh, sometimes we fear and are alarmed when an officer pulls us over. Well, I, I got to tell you, I'm traveling a lot right now, as you can imagine. I've been traveling for the last two years. Uh, my previous ministry, I was traveling for up to close to two hours to the ministry here. It's close to four. And uh, one of the things I'm doing is I'm traveling. You got to always watch for those uh, state troopers because you never know who's going to be around you. Sometimes they're coming in these undercover cars. You don't know. My son's always looking and wondering. He goes, Dad, you know, what is that one? I said, I think that's a cop. I looked in. It's a cop. Okay. And he says, and then I remember one time we were traveling from New Jersey and this guy was flying, going, swerving. I said, watch, son, 20 seconds. He's pulled over. 20 seconds he was pulled over because there was we saw the undercover cop and with the undercover car and they're in these small little cars you think that can't be a cop but these small they soup up the engines and so they get around and so I don't know about you but yesterday I was driving and I thought my life was gone I honestly I'm, I'm being I'm being serious I thought it was a miracle I didn't get killed yesterday I'm traveling you know just a little over the speed limit telling you the truth and uh this uh the two guys I don't know they were racing three of them in fact were phew, came like this. I was like, I'm like what? what in the world? And I'm like, what in the world was that? And I was like, these cars are flying. They had to go 90. And we're, it was busy. It was a lot of traffic on the highway. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I, that scared the daylights out of me. And I just sat there almost like in fear and trembling. I was like, wow. And then on the right was an officer from Prince George with his lights on, just traveling on the right. All of a sudden, these guys saw me. And they went to the right, right behind the officer. They went from like 90 down to 40. I mean, it was just like really cool. And I was like, ah, I wish they would have gotten caught. Because see, there was the way they were doing this. It was, it was scary. But when they saw that officer, all of a sudden fear, just they were frightened. And they slowed down. And they revered themselves. They said, okay, we have to respect the officer. And it was just funny because when I saw it, I was like, wow, how quickly we change when an officer is around. I mean, I don't know if some of you are in here or there are officers here. You can have some fun with my story. But then it could be that when, do you ever recall that, you know, sometimes you didn't study and try to look over at the other person's paper and then all of a sudden your teacher catches you looking and then they realize you cheated and then they talk to you afterwards you're like, oh, I got caught. It's like this. And it's all of a sudden fear. Just what are they going to do? Give me an F. Are they going to give me a chance? What's going to And you're sitting there and there's this fear, alarming kind of feeling. Or maybe it's just you get caught with a bad behavior. You're doing something and hiding. Someone finds out. And a fear just overwhelms you. And it cons it just, it's just alarming. Or maybe uh, it's just 
the principal's office. I don't know about you, but I got called to the principal's office a few times in my life. When you get called, the principal wants to see you. Oh, man. Oh, the principal wants to see you. And then you're just like, oh, man, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? You go over there, and you're just humbling yourself. See, in all of this, fear can captivate us. It can seize us. And that's what this word awe truly means. And the people were overwhelmed, and they were wondering as to what this particular signs and wonders was happening. But let me just have you put your finger there at verse 43 and look with me to 22 of that same chapter. 22. Because it says this, men of Israel, we're going to see this verse again. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst as you yourselves know. See, that word mighty works, mighty, the word is dunamis in Greek, where we get the word dynamite. There's a dynamite power of God that does supernatural things, unexplained at times in our lives. God is doing that work through his son. That's where the work is being done. It's through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the word signs, uh, what we're, we're looking at in the Greek, it means an event that is an indication of confirmation of intervention by transcendent powers. It's a miracle. Uh, it's just really simply a miracle. So, so miracle has to be equaling supernatural, something that's out of the natural. Wonder means something that astounds because of the transcendent association. So it means wonder or prodigy, something that's beyond us. So we have to ask the question, what do we know, what do we know about miracles? What do we know about miracles, even in the Bibles? Well, the first thing is this. Miracles are supernatural and unexplainable to the natural. Put your finger here in chapter 2 of Acts, and let's look at Luke chapter 7, verse 13. Luke chapter 7 verse 13. And I'm going to read 13, 14, and 15. I'm going to put 16 on the screen. And it says this, and when the Lord saw her, which he's referring to a widow, and he actually raised the widow's son from from the death to life. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood there. And that's just a coffin, a stretcher. And it said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave to him his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet had arise among us. And God had visited his people. So we see that a supernatural thing happened, unexplainable. God in flesh, Jesus raised someone from the dead. Now you got to see something here because Luke is mentioning of Jesus' compassion. Usually you don't see it too often in Luke's writings. But Luke highlights his compassion towards this woman. And he, he moved in this situation, and like any other synoptic gospel, he moved. But he touched the dead body. Now in Numbers chapter 19, 11, one, should, one could not touch a dead body and be ceremonially clean. So here is Jesus touching the body because he's God. He's God in flesh. But they called him a great prophet. They didn't see him as deity. 
But yet when supernatural, miraculous things would happen, Jesus was, it was done so that Jesus would be identified as deity, as God in flesh. So here he's doing this, but to the normal man, to the skeptic, to the Jew, they would see him and they'd say, he's just a prophet, an Elijah type, but he's not the son of God. But yet Jesus to touch and to raise him from the dead, that's miraculous. That's supernatural. That's not natural. It's natural to die in this world, but it's not natural to raise someone from the dead. It's not natural from what we saw in that movie. It's unnatural to see that we see when someone's pronounced dead, they're dead. It's supernatural when God brings them back to life. And so that's what we have to understand is that God is doing a work. So it's supernatural. And they don't give glory to Jesus. They give glory to God. Now, if we look at Acts, or excuse me, Luke 8, 37, it goes on to say this. It says, then all the people of the surrounding country of Genesis asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So they got into the boat and returned. So Jesus casted out a demon from a person. And again, there was a great fear. Why? Because it wasn't natural. It was supernatural, unexplainable. And what we have to understand is that in Christ, we see that happening. Jesus, when he performed a miracle, it was to bring forth identity of who Jesus is as, as God in flesh. But again, they didn't bring glory to Jesus. They brought glory to God. They recognized him as a great prophet. So we have to understand, though, it's supernatural. Two, what we have to understand is that God performs miracles according to his will. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, that same verse. Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. Now, the word attested means to show forth, reveal, proclaim glory. So it's just to reveal who he is. It's in the perfect passive, which means God was revealing himself through his son. He's God in flesh. So it was a plan before eternity passed. But throughout the book of Acts, we see signs and wonders happening to bring forth identity of Jesus. Now remember, we have to understand that Jesus was was thrown on a cross, he was nailed to a cross, and the Jew, Jew, skeptic Jew, or the Judaizer did not recognize him as God in flesh. So when there's a other term or something that we see, we see that even in Acts 6-8, we see Stephen, the first recorded um, statement here about signs and wonders through another individual besides Jesus. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He didn't do it in his own strength because only its salvation comes by grace through faith. He didn't do it in his own power. It's dunamis power. It's dynamite power from God. It's not something he did. But the great wonders and signs were of God. Now, wait a minute, though. See, the Jews were looking for a sign. They were looking for a Messiah. They were giving glory to God because one who was following Judaism could do that. But what was happening was they were looking for a sign of the Messiah, and here is Jesus. We're going to understand something. In Isaiah 61, 1 through 2b, we see that the coming of the Messiah would make the blind to see and the lame to walk. And so Jesus is performing miracles, and they're still not giving glory to Jesus. They're only giving glory to God. They're recognizing him to just be a prophet. Now, he is a prophet, priest, and king. 
But he's the true and only prophet that is even Moses mentioned in Deuteronomy 18. The one who's to come. The one who's the Messiah, the King. The one who's to come to save us from our sin. God with us, Emmanuel. And so we see that Stephen was, and then we see in Barnabas too in Acts 14.3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, a who bore witness to the word of his grace. Again, grace. Granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands, identifying. And then even in Acts 15, at the time when they were doing the Jerusalem Council, identifying, at the Jerusalem Council, they were identifying the message of salvation. Because the Judaizers were trying to add the law in there, they were highlighting what the message of salvation is. And here in Acts 15, 12, it says, and all the assembly felt silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So you got to understand, the Gentiles were unclean. They weren't received amongst the Jews. They were bickering on as to whether the Gentiles should be received. But through signs and wonders and miracles, it identified Jesus as the Messiah. So we have to understand that it's always done and the Father's will. And then third, God is performing power always pointed to Jesus. So where you see a miracle, you've got to see Jesus. You see a miracle and there's no pointing to Jesus, it's not truly from God. We got to understand that as Christians. I am not a skeptic. I believe God is at work today. But it has to be through the power and work, through the person and work of Jesus. It's got to be through the gospel. The gospel's Trinitarian. It doesn't separate itself. Just like in the first service, it needs, I mean, the first century, it's got to be the same. And so we have to understand that. And so when we're looking at it, the supernatural, death is natural, but bringing a person back to life is supernatural. I want to read a scripture to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 54, 7. It says this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus when he resurrected from the dead. He overcame death. And we have to understand this, too, that when Jesus, he paid for the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin. When we go into his presence, then sin will be no more. And that's the beauty of understanding that. So the second question I ask is this. What do we need to know about reverential fear? How do we understand that? We have to understand this. If God is awe and is wonder, we have to understand God and, and the very creation of God. I was looking at something Francis Chan had put on, uh, on YouTube when he was talking about some years ago. But in the telescope, when it kind of zooms out, and then we see on that particular, when we're going from when you see Earth and you're pulling back away into the universe, Earth becomes a little speck on the screen. Then the sun becomes a speck. Then the Milky Way even is not seen anymore. You see the galaxy, and you're just overwhelmed a million light years away. God in his infinitude, God in his awesomeness, God in the vastness of the infinitude that would come, that even though I'm this small, just pew, this small on the, I'm not even that small, I can't even get my finger closer, how small, I'm not even a speck of dust on that screen. 
And yet God in his amazing love and his passion for us, that even though I could be this small on the screen, I'm this big here on earth. Because Jesus died for me, and he died for sin, and he died for you, and he died so that we could have a relationship with him, that we're, that we're this big that he loved us so much, that the infinitude, the transcending God would come and make himself known to us, that the vastness of God and the, awesome of, the awesomeness of God would cause us that we would be in awe of him. You and I need to be a people of worship that are in awe of God. We cannot sit here and not be in awe of God. I know that the ministry can be mundane. The message of the gospel can be mundane, but only if we allow it to be. Guys, we've got to see God working at us more and more each day, being that we can be used of him to touch a life around us. Because God, we don't need a big sign or a big miracle, because I really believe the miracle starts in you and I through Christ. That's the beauty of the miracle. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so I think it's important for us to understand that because as we look at this passage in chapter 2, verse 43, we have to see right away there was a miracle in chapter 3. So turn with me to chapter 3 for just a moment. I want to read this like a narrative to you in the first eight, nine verses. I just want to read it because it's a story. And Peter and John are about to go to the temple to pray, which was customary for a Jew to go and pray. So just read with me uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This is around 3 o'clock. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms for those entering the temple. Simply, he couldn't work on his own. He could not walk. He needed alms in order to live. They carried him to help him. Now, verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, they asked, he asked to receive alms. So he's, they're standing there. He asked them to receive alms. And Peter directly directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. That's an imperative. The power of the Holy Spirit is moving. Look at us. And he said, as he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, Peter said, I have no silver and he gold. And I have no silver and no gold. And he probably said, so what are you talking to me for? But he said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. It was a miracle. Signs and wonders, a miracle. Unexplainable, supernatural miracle. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And he recognized him as one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. Here's what they, this is the response. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now watch. i got to be honest with you. If I was there, I'd be a skeptic. I don't know. I'd be like, wow, how'd you do that? Where'd you pull that magic trick out? How'd you get him to walk? Was he just not sitting there? I would have sat there wondered as the Jew just being skeptic. How could he just stand up like that? This is a show. In fact, amazement to me is different from awe. See, amazement is like you could sit there and watch MLB, and you're, whoa, amazing catch. Oh, look at it, right on the shoe catch. Oh, he grabs the ball, and he throws it in. Whoa, look at that double play. Amazing. I'll be like, okay, that's great. 
Ah, it's cool. That's right. But nothing really touched me personally. It was just amazing. Oh, that's an amazing thing. Oh, it's cool. It's amazing. Awe is when God begins to do a work on me. Awe is when now the heavens and the earth begin to open up in my heart. I grew up a good Catholic boy, going to Catholic church because I was forced to go. And so when I would go, I would sense that, you know, why am I here? What's the purpose of my existence? I don't know about you, but I would look up in the sky when I was a kid and go, why am I here? Why, do I, why, why is this, where are my arms here? I would go and I would just ask that question. I don't know if you guys have ever done that before. I would do and I'd say, that, I'd say to myself, man, why am I here? And then all of a sudden, I just said, I don't know. I didn't understand. I was amazed at what I saw, but it didn't make sense to me. I just accepted it the way it was. God, I saw him as a deist God, kind of the long, old, white beard, just sitting up there with his shades on, chilling, cooling back, and just saying, y'all take care of things down there. I'm up here. I'm sipping on my eternal drink over here. And so he's over there, and he's having fun, and then we would just go about our own business. But as we were going out our own business, I never thought that God would want a relationship with me. But when he came through his son, all of a sudden, I was in awe. I was in awe, and I'm still in awe. I'm still amazed at what God does through his son. I'm amazed that he would even consider me, that he chose me to do a work that I don't deserve. I'm amazed at the fact that he would even call me his son when I know I look at my life and say, I'm not worthy. I'm amazed that he would even want to change me and how sinful I see myself and how awesome he is. That he gives me a second and third chance. When I'm amazed that I never was truly encouraged and built up, but he would love on me and care for me and build me up. That's the amazing awe of God. When we're, we're fearing and reverence of his amazingness and then drawn to him, that he would love me and have a relationship with me. I'm amazed that even though I understand that if you can go 10,000 billion light years away and we're just a little speck on, the, on, that, on that screen, I'm amazed that he's still interested in me. I'm amazed when he claps for me. I'm amazed when he picks me up. I'm amazed that when I make a mistake, he still says, I love you. I'm amazed when I make a mistake, I get hit hard for it. But I'm amazed that I have a God who never lets me down. And I think that that's what is happening here because see, in verse 11, this is when it says, while he, this lame, healed, lamed man clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded again, utterly amazed, utterly moved. But this is, here he goes, he goes, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. In verse 12, he says, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people and he says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you, meaning what are you doing? Why are you wondering? He goes, why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him to walk? Then he goes back. He says this, what is it? He's saying, you got to understand where this came from. It didn't come from us. The signs and wonders and miracle, the supernatural, unexplainable event did not come from us. We didn't have some kind of trick in our back pocket. We didn't do anything. It was Christ and Christ alone. In fact, that's why we have to understand that reverential fear is Christ-centered. Look at this in verse 13. It says this right here in verse 13. It says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. 
Let me stop there. He took it from the Old Testament to the New, the continuity of the patriarch connected, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New Covenant, coming together through the glorified servant of Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You, it says verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. They couldn't get rid of him. They tried to kill him, and, Jesus, and God said, no, I'm raising my Jesus, my son. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of God. You all see it wasn't the lame, it wasn't the fact that God had healed and performed a miracle and be able to make him walk again. What was a greater miracle there was that he saved him from his sin. That he was able to be saved to know who the person and work of Jesus Christ is. That's when he came to perfect health. See, a miracle isn't about just a miracle. It's not about looking for another sign. The miracle's finding Jesus. The miracle's knowing that your sin is forgiven. That you and I can't pay a debt. It's impossible to pay. And the debt that's so over, overwhelming and astronomical, God's saying, I paid that for you through my son. And that's where true reverential awe, we should be in awe because when we're in awe of God and what he's done for us, we're better together because now it's no longer me-centered, it's Christ-centered. See, here's the thing. In verse 14, In verse 14, Peter made a comment, and Luke wrote that down. You denied. You know what that word denied means? It means to disown, repudiate. The Jews were denying and disowning Jesus as the Messiah. Wait a minute. He was performing all these miracles. He did it in the New Testament, in the the Gospels, and then we're seeing it done through the apostles. And yet they're still saying he's not from God. They're, not, they're saying that he's not the Messiah that came in flesh. They're saying that he is not truly the author of life. They're not saying that he's the originator, that he's the one who resurrected. They're denying it. And he says, that's fine. The father said, that's fine. You can keep denying it, but he is the son of God. You can keep denying it, but he is the originator. He is the creator. See, I think sometimes we miss the awe of God. We miss the fear of the Lord. Because sometimes we can deny God in small ways as his people. In our sanctification, we can miss that. And God is trying to say that, listen, I want you to be in awe of my son. You know the word glorified there means this, the glorified servant? To cause to have splendid greatness. Clothe in splendor. Glorify. In fact, it says of the glory that comes in the next life. Let me read a passage to you here from John 17, 1 through 5. Jesus is sitting there. He's praying with the Father. Special moment from John 14 through 17 before he is about to go to be mangled and killed for sin. It says this, Jesus said, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I don't know about you, but that moves me. That the son would not want to have anything about himself. 
He didn't want glory for himself. He wanted the glory to go to his father. The beautiful harmony, harmony, harmony and unity, harmonious unity, the beauty of the just the, the interconnection, the interpersonal relationship between the Father and the Son just blows me away. And that we are to reflect that in the body of Christ. We're to reflect that, but the beauty, because he's saying it's not about me. It's not about what I want to get out of this Father. It's all about you. And the Father says, it's not about me. It's about you, Son. It's about the Spirit. And the beauty of this is he goes on, he says this, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him, and this eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before you existed. He just... It's the beauty of it. See, God doesn't want us to be in awe by his works more than he wants to be in awe with the work he's doing in us. And that's the beauty of God. That's the beauty of understanding that it's about Christ-centered, not me-centered. Secondly, this, reverential fear is is Christian-centered. Look with me to Acts chapter 3, verse 19. It says this, Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come, verse 20, from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. See, the beauty of this is this, that with repent, it means that God has turned about face through Christ. He's given us a different view of Jesus. We now see him as the, as the Messiah, the one come who come to save us from our sin, the one who's died on the cross for our sin. So the repenting, see, repentance was a summary throughout the book of Acts, and he's changing our view of who God is through his son. But the turning from sin is the idea of turning uh, that makes highlights of pointing and ending up toward God, that our turning from our sin means that now we're cleansed, that God shows us now that person of Christ and what he has done for us. And so because he died for us, now we turn from our sin, no longer continue in it and look toward God to confess that sin and work towards repentance. And the beauty of it is that God, he does that often, he says this, 11 times in the book of Acts. And, and it's like moving toward, it's turning toward God or the Lord. It's the idea of just dying to self and looking to God. And see, when he says times of refreshment, he's talking about a future, an eschatological future. So it means that when we repent and turn from our sin, we find refreshment. Because we know Jesus is coming. We know that the promise is that the second coming of Christ is coming, and we get that refreshment. We know that when we repent and turn from our sin, we're in awe of God that he would receive us in his sight. And then the refreshment is being released of our sin, being drawn close to God in relationship. And the awe of God is then when I'm doing that, not focusing on me, not focusing on others, but focusing on the fact that Jesus is the one who's doing that work in me, now we're better together. I'm not gossiping, I'm not slandering, I'm not causing any malice, I'm not blaming everybody for my problems, I'm taking my problems to Jesus. 
I'm saying I repent. Jesus, I want to turn from my sin. Jesus, change my heart. And then refreshment comes, and then I'm in awe of God, and then I'm better with you, and you're better with me. And then we're a body and community working better together for the kingdom of God. See, the beauty of it is this, that when we have awe of God in his presence and his person, then truly we can become something of great work and greatness for God. See, here's, here's, you know, Randy Alcorn said this so well in one of his articles. He said in his article entitled, God's Greatest Miracles Happen in and Around Us All the Time. He says this, our Lord transforming human hearts through stunning acts done daily around the globe is every bit as miraculous as Jesus transforming water into wine. In fact, these redemptive acts make the dividing of the Red Sea, the falling walls of Jericho, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead actually pale in comparison. Is that an overstatement? No, because the greatest physical miracles cost our all-powerful God nothing. But the miracles of salvation, sanctification, and glorification cost the very life of God's Son. The beauty of that is this, that Jesus... When we understand and are in awe of what he's done for us, the beauty is this, that we can understand we are better together because we fear and trust God and work with other believers, the church will thrive. The church will thrive. We're better together when we're focused on our sin, when we're focused on our wrongdoing, and then when we go to God We're in awe of his presence. We're in awe of his work in us. We're in awe of the transforming mercy and grace of God in our sanctification, ultimately in our glorification. Because then when we're better together, then we're doing this. We're serving others. You know when he said that Jesus, the glorified servant, if the son of God came and he was the glorified servant, he had every right to be the God who wants everyone to serve him. But he said, I came not to be served, but to serve to give my life as a ransom for many. He's the glorified servant. And if Jesus, who is God in flesh, is the glorified servant, is called to serve, what does that do for me? I need to serve. And when I'm serving, and I'm in awe of God, and he's changing me, you and I, we have that attitude of service. We're better together. We're better together because we're serving one another. We're not serving my purposes. You're not serving your purposes. We're serving each other's purposes. And then when we do that, we grow together and we thrive. See, the glorified servant is simply this. When we focus our eyes and fear the Lord and recognize the true miracles and salvation, I'm not a skeptic. I believe God's doing a work. I think it's a wonderful work when he does something like this because he brings glory to God. He brings glory to Jesus. He brings glory to the Spirit of God. But I'll tell you, I think one of the greatest miracles that we're forgetting every day as believers is the transforming mercy and grace of God through his Son. And you and I have got to hold on to that. If we want to thrive to reach the world for the kingdom of God and for Waldorf, we've got to be focused in awe and worship. You know, I was sitting there. I know maybe some of the worship team was wondering, why was I sitting there today? Because the Lord was impressing upon me, we need to be a people of worship. I'm not talking about Sunday morning. And I'm sure enough not talking about 15 minutes a week. Shame on us if we're only worshiping 15 minutes a week. Worship is a lifestyle. And when we're worshiping God in everything we do, he will honor himself. 
He will be faithful to himself. This is his church. This is his word. This is his message. This is his gospel. This isn't about us. This is all about his son. And we must begin to worship. Guys, I want to encourage you. If I can give you a message, it's quite clear from the scriptures. We need to be a people of worship. Now, I'm not telling you this. Because on Sunday mornings, you need to be in here ready to worship at 11 o'clock, not 11.01, 2, 3, 5, 7, 10, or 11.30. Now, if you have to get here because of an emergency, I understand. I want to encourage you to come because we're better together when we worship together, whether it's here on Sunday morning or worship together when you and I don't see each other. I want to encourage you to do so. Let's see God at work in a way that only God can be at work. I want to pray for you as the team is coming up. Let's pray for God to do a miraculous work in us today. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for miracles, Lord, because we know they're from you. We know they're pointing to Jesus. We thank you that they're supernatural and unexplainable because we can't be in control of it and mess it up. I thank you, Lord, that when you do perform miracles, it always points back to the son. So God, remind us of the importance of the miracle of salvation in our lives and that we could be in awe of you, worshiping you on a daily basis, moment by moment with a lifestyle that says, I want to worship you. Yes, we'll fail, Lord, but yes, God, you will be faithful to yourself. Today, I pray that you would start that this week, a real reverential fear of you, moving in the midst of you. I thank you in advance to what you're going to do with Grace Church Waldorf and that your spirit will move in an awesome way. Continue to do that work. Cause us to be excited for you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.